0: So this morning we begin, or we continue, I should say, in the days of creation as this was just read for you. And I mentioned last week, just for your benefit of kind of piecing together the, the flow of days one through three and days four through six, is that the introduction to the way that God created the earth, uh, and the heavens and the earth, and the introduction for you to then be able to wisely read uh, the, the um, succession of God's creative work in the next six days is that statement there at the beginning of chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, and then at this point, as a reader, as you're working through all that God, the sovereign workman, is about to do, you're reading what he does in light of verse 2. The earth, at this point, was without form. And it was void, or, or it was a, a wasteland. And then the idea that you're kind of imagining in your mind what that must have looked like, that God created the heavens and the earth in this, in this manner of being without a form, and in, this sense, in that sense, chaotic, um, and void as a wasteland, not lush and full, but in its initial created structure or its architectural framework, is that it is without such form, and it is void, and darkness is covering over the face of the sea. And then you begin to read that God began to bring form to that which is without form. And then you expectantly read that he would bring fullness or or, or life to that which is void or a wasteland. And that is exactly what he does in these uh, marvelous six days of God as sovereign workmen creating and maintaining the world, that it would be ripe and teeming with all life forms by the end of day six as he then creates man, male and female, creating them that they would be um, upon the earth in its fullness that he has made for them. So, that when we take the entire uh, days one through six together, the entire creation story, if you you were to read all the way through the text and then come back and you were to kind of summarize what you're being taught by reading, what what is it that I'm learning and value of reading about God, taking that which is without form and giving it this perfect form, and taking that which is a wasteland and void and filling it with fullness and teeming with every type of life. What am I learning as a believer as I read this? What am I moved by? What is being revealed to me? But that the creation account reveals to us the people of God. A God who speaks. A God who evaluates. Deliberates. Forms and regulates all of creation by the word of his power. That's what I'm learning. That's the God that I have been called to serve, to love, to offer my praise, to offer my giving. To present myself as he summons me on Lord's day. and and we believe this as believers we confess that he made all things out of no things whether visible or invisible and he did so in the space of 6 days and we believe that it was morally right and indeed it was good and just we believe this through faith hebrews 11:3 we had time a few years ago to enjoy our time walking through the book of hebrews and you remember Hebrews 11 is that great hall of faith of what people speak, of the hall of faith, those faithful members uh, of the Church of Christ who have gone on before us and leaving great testimony and remain that testimony recorded in the Holy Scripture for us to see as a cloud of witnesses. We go to the text, we read the text, we're so moved by the text of the great people of God over time and even more so of their great God. And it's interesting, it's, it's in Hebrews 11, it's describing faith and what it is. It, 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 and, and not in some, but in its aspect, of, of its, its hope, of the things unseen, as though they were possessed. And you know right where he begins his argument? For all of the people whose faith rested in Christ and Christ alone. He reminds us of creation the sovereign workman of the heavens. He who delivers promises yet unseen is not totally unknown to us. He is the God of creation. And he's making this argument, right, that the surety of creation speaks to the surety of his promises. This is the argument. And that's why he starts at chapter 11, that way of speaking of, by faith these people did this. You know, they they lived on the earth, not as just some sense of a matter of sphere, but they lived on it as the theater within which God has created. It influenced their lives, changed their decisions, shaped their ethics, emboldened their faith. Hebrews, verse 3 of chapter 11, I just read for you. He starts the entire argument. You go back and and begin reading um, chapter 11, that that great uh, chapter, again, uh, of many saints and the work of God among them. And he begins this way, quote, by faith. This is where faith uh, continues to build. But where where, where we rest our our faith at, at its very beginning point, it's by faith we understand that the universe was created By the word of God, by faith we understand this, that the universe, all of it, from without form and void of life forms to being totally in perfect harmony and form and full and teeming with life of which my life is a part. I believe that all of this came to be by the word of God. So, so that he goes on, th- th- this is the way that it makes sense. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, but they were made, created, products of the sovereign workman who, when he speaks, all obeys. So sure is his word. And the power of creating the universe by it. That it's a performative utterance. That what he says performs. That all these folks live their lives in light of that. That he is a God who speaks. And his word is performative. And his word is sure. That's what we're learning through... Uh, the creative narrative, the here, the story of creation, the power of the agency of the eternal word Of God. And this morning, I want to move with you through days four through six. And next week, we'll handle particularly um, uh, the creation of male uh, and female, the the creation of man and the image of God. So we'll start just short of that aspect, that portion of day six. But we'll begin uh, this morning just looking at days four through six. If you look with me, as has already been read for you, but as we jump into where we go from here, as the God who speaks and all obeys him, We see him still speaking, day four, beginning in verse 14. And God spoke, God said, that that performative utterance, he who speaks and the elements come to be and obey. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth. And and it's true in this coordination of, of the word of God. It is a performative utterance. He speaks, let there be lights. And then you have that conclusion that could be no other conclusion than this. And it was so. That's what structured the people of faith in Hebrews 11. The surety of the word of God. Verse 16 continues in this day for development. And and God said, uh, or and God made the two great lights the the great light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And I say it like that because you'll see that in the text. That's a significant piece. Verse 17, and and God said, uh, God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the night or, or the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. This this is the right way. This is the right schematic. This is this is proper fit, just. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So on day four, there, verses fourteen uh, through nineteen, you see God created luminaries or uh, the lights of the heavens. And, and the purposes you see there throughout there, do you, do you see it? They are to be uh, signs for seasons and for days and for years. And then if you go down to their functionary purpose uh, uh, in verse 16, to rule day, to rule night. And then verse 18, to rule over the day and over the night, right? So the purpose of these luminaries is to function in a capacity of the sun, the moon, and the stars to regulate time. To regulate day and night and to serve as signs for uh, signposting the fixed seasonal cycles of the earth. We are upon one, I think, right? This is the second day of fall. So, right, so so we're recognizing uh, the news. You turn it on in the morning. It tells you when the sun is now coming up and when it is now going down. It it is telling you here is the regulatory time. Here are the aspects of daylight and this all through planetary motion, right? Because this this was the way in which they were to function, each of us here at our house, um, the Thomas household that is, we're already, I I think, like on the last day of summer, uh, Adrian might stay up till midnight so that at the stroke of 1201 all of the fall candles come out. <laughs> it could be 95 degrees and we're having chilly like, or something like that because fall is here. It, so if it's hot for like the next three weeks we'll still be wearing winter coats, uh, uh, sweatshirts, no shorts. They've all been put in the basement. Um, fall is here. It needs to regulate our lives. Let's get the sweaters and the, and the blankets out. And so with that same sense, but with more than a planetary motion understanding, right? Without, like, the great candles emerging from the basement for the next season of cycles. More than planetary motion and how it turns on its axis and based on its tilting. We realize that the day now is getting shorter. Based on our movement around the sun, we're realizing more than that is Moses' religious concern. Or as we said at the very beginning of our series, the concern here of Moses is theological. And what is his primary religious concern here, or for the people of God here at the plains of Moab, reading the account of origins? What is his concern here with the idea, if it's not about planetary motion... And it's orbiting around the sun in the way that the shadow now is upon us in order to shorten and elongate days. If if that's not the concern, then what is? And for Moses, the concern of describing here the planets and their structuring is that the people of God here in his account, it is his concern that they reject and flee from any worship of these luminaries. Indeed, his primary concern of what we've already covered multiple times is that the sovereign workmen, He, the God of Israel, is who has created these elements. And he calls out of nothing and something comes. So we've covered those aspects before, but I want to draw your attention specifically here with the planets. Moses has a particular strategy here. And his strategy here enlisting the luminaries um, of the sky is to urge the people of God and to warn them to reject and flee from any worship of these luminaries. In fact, here, uh, uh, this is back to why I read the text the way that I did. If you were noticing that even in the listing of the stars, if, if you look, uh, look with me and, and you'll see it reflected uh, in, in the construction of the sentence in, in the Hebrew, you'd see in verse 16, and God made the two great lights. Okay, so, so notice here already uh, in, in his uh, work, he's not listing and telling you, he made the sun and the moon, right? Um, uh, w- w- which the Babylonians would have worshipped the, the sun. Right? So, so now he's, make, he, he's making an argument here. So, so he, he's making an appeal uh, not to get bogged down to the idea of the sun and its origin, but look at what he's moving past because his concern is other. Verse 16, God made the two great lights, the great light to rule the day. That's why he, he, it's his production piece. He made it, and it rules the day. And he made the lesser light to rule the night. And then you notice the the, uh, way it's edited in your English copy. And the stars. You see, it's uh, direct interest to Moses to de-emphasize the stars. Not to wash away the origins, or that God, indeed, is he who cast them into the galaxies. But Moses' concern, again is that with the surrounding cultures of the Babylonians and the Egyptians, according to Egypt's mythology, the stars themselves were believed to be gods. And not just like random gods, but controlling spheres. They were considered to be those celestial bodies that controlled human destiny. And as a result... The surrounding cultures feared the stars, their orbits, their movements, the seasons, and through pagan worship, tried to draw their favor. Moses' concern is that the people of God would flee such idolatries as seeing them not as celestial gods, but as products of the one God's creative activity. Now, I do need to warn you, uh, if you, I thought of some of you here uh, as we approach the fall, is this, uh, how long have people worshipped celestial bodies or considered the stars to be gods and so forth? And uh, I say it a little tongue-in-cheek, but at the same time, you recognize this discipline, if you'd call it that, does still exist. Uh, Astrology. Right, And so for you who now are celebrating, our household, as I said, celebrating with the festive fall candles, maybe you are moving towards your horoscope. Uh, March, uh, if you were born, uh, which is ripe for us uh, because it's coming up uh, on the 24th, today being 23. So I warn you imminently. If you were born uh, between March 21 and April 19th, And this is not tongue-in-cheek. This is really, uh, this is for real. Uh, This really uh, was written. Uh, It's time for the temper-testing full moon in Ares. On September 24th, which can help us push past our limits, if we channel our energy with our intention. So get ready to channel your energy the temper-testing moon is approaching tomorrow, especially for those susceptible born between March 21 and April 19. It's extremely important to know that a full moon in Ares, being a fire sign element, can bring anger and aggression if the energy isn't properly directed. And in order to make this celestial event a growth spurt instead of a dead end in one's life, So, as of September 23rd, the sun is in happy-go-lucky Libra, which can help us be social, focus on issues of justice in society. This is a great time to use the fire of the Ares full moon to release anything that isn't aligned with doing good for the world. That could mean letting go of a toxic relationship, job, or even a habit that is keeping you from sharing your love with the greater good in a meaningful way. Keep in mind that Neptune, the planet of dreams, spirituality and fantasy, will end its retrograde and go directly on in September 26th, and Pluto, the planet of our subconsciousness and hidden power, also goes direct. On September 30th, what does all this mean for you? It means, be prepared to feel like you've come back into your body and into the world just for a few days. Recognize you have spent significant time in the spiritual side of your brain, reorganizing the parts that needed oiling and a little degreasing, so to speak. Okay. (laughs) right? Back to the land of living. But as silly and tongue-in-cheek as that can be, that we would give fair warning to September 24th and the full moon of fire from Aries is the same, but yet maybe different, but of the same kind, is the concern of Moses. And I think what is noteworthy here, whether it be in tarot cards or astronomy, in today's more modern culture, Or or what Moses is dealing with Egyptian and, and, and Babylonian mythologies. Noteworthy here to each and every one of us in the room is how powerful the influence of the surrounding cultural ideas of origins and destiny can be. That is applicable immediately, even if you're not going to get your cards read this afternoon, which I hope you're not. But it doesn't make the text a wash. Well, his concern is uh, idol worship. And now you just read uh, kind of a, a left field kind of thing that is like from tarot reading. So I don't do either. No, no, no. It doesn't matter. Noteworthy here for each of us is how powerful the influence of the surrounding cultural ideas of origins and destiny can be. More subtly than you realize. So that ground is given. Moses writes later, so he has his argument here, right? Greater light, lesser light, and yeah, the stars. To downplay the deification of these elements. But, but it continued to fester and grow so much that Deuteronomy 4.19, Moses writes this. And beware, this is his urging to the people of God. Combining Genesis 1 in his account with this exhortation in Deuteronomy 4, he says, and beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, these celestial elements that I spoke of in Genesis 1, beware, lest you raise your eyes to the heavens and you gaze upon them. He goes, all the hosts of heaven, beware. Why? He ends it this way, and you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. You see, Moses' concern is to address the sinful tendency to be so drawn up and captivated by the nobility of the sun, the nobility of the stars, the beauty of the moon, that one begins to reverence it to a point of reverencing it over the creator who made it. That's his concern. Greater light, lesser light in all the lights. Be careful, lest when you look upon the heavens and all their hosts, you be drawn away and you bow down to them and you serve them. Indeed, nature is noble nature is firm, powerful, instructional, but the simple tendency of the heart is to reverence it, be awestruck by it, to the exclusion of the creator who made it. Now, again, I, I, in thinking of our setting now and receiving this exhortation from Moses that we be careful, I, I don't think that any of us particularly here um, in this context, and I, I don't say any of us here in the room, I, I think for, for, for the majority, uh, uh, I think very few uh, may be drawn away toward acts of formal liturgical worship uh, of the Son. Now, not say it doesn't exist and occur, but I say, um, but, but uh, again, we may not be drawn toward away a as the church uh, a, against uh, formal worship. Certainly, as the church of, of these celestial bodies, or, or be drawn to idolatry of them, where where we where we create the craft and we stare at it and we talk about it and we celebrate its orbiting and we have festivals in light of its orbiting, like the first day of fall. There, let's have a party based on all of the pagan. Ideas, but this does not mean that we don't have a significant warning here in the text from Moses. I think that what is a significant warning here for us, the people of God, as we consider, consider Moses' concern about idolatry and the elements and the celestial beings of the skies, is that more so for us we can be sinfully presumptuous in the way we handle the blessings of nature. I think that is a concern that still stands to the people of God here and now in the church. Yeah, sure, we we might not look to the nobility and get carried off into formal liturgical worship or make the idols to bow down to them and celebrate their, their movements in orbit, but we can be regularly, sinfully presumptuous in the way we handle the blessings of nature. In other words, what I mean by that is we may live blissfully unaware. And I mean that in a negative light. We may live blissfully unaware of how our lives are kept, governed, and preserved by God's works of providence in nature. At times, I'm struck at how many um, uh, believers. Um, you know, again, I, I think the, the question is like, okay, how much food is a meal? Where, where does a meal time fall? What am I doing? Do I need to pray every single time I consume something? Oh no, 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 no. But I am struck at how many, in a sense of regularity, how many believers don't pray before they eat. weird. Like again, well, does the snack count? Do I need to do this? Do I need to pray right now? Does God know that I'm thankful? Do I live in his world? Do I receive his gifts? Do I sure 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 sure. And and, and do you have to pray at every single meal? Like, well, it's only five o'clock, nobody's up, it's just me. It's just a bowl of I'm just gonna pound it out and go. It's just, how, how, whatever the arguments are, right? But I am struck at how many believers don't regularly pray at meals. In some sort of balanced, organized manner. W- well, why? Well, because you're not pagans. You're eating off the table of the bounty of the Lord. Now, that bounty might not be great. It's argument- It's up for grabs, certain meal to meal, however you feel about that. W- whatever the options are. Maybe it's heavily processed foods. Oh, shame on you? No. Um, I'm not one of those people. But, nonetheless... Right. So that you, a, a pattern is established in a believing home that at, at, at providential moments within a given day, I, I eat maybe roughly, let's just say the argument is I do eat three times a day, a breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner, just for the sake of argument. There's the, then there's these three basic moments in your day that are opportunities to give thanks for providence. Again, how many of us live blissfully unaware of how our lives are kept at this sandwich, governed in this home apart from disaster, and preserved by the goodness of the Lord every day by his providential working in nature For my behalf? You see, providence in some form, in some form, is known to all people. And, and many of you in the sciences, as we look at creation and God's work as a sovereign workman and establishing the world that we live in, laws of nature that govern modern discoveries in medicine and science, math and its inner workings, all people everywhere have some form of a knowledge of providence. But this is the distinction. They don't know it as the gracious care of a loving heavenly father. And Christians do. That's why we would pray something as simple as recognizing this is care given for my family at this moment by a loving Heavenly Father that gave me the benefits of the field and the harvest of the sea. To be to means me a means whereby I continue to be nourished. He meets both my physical and my spiritual needs. Do we even acknowledge that or live blissfully unaware? Let me give you an example just of how all people in, in, in all places uh, know something of providence, though they don't know it as a gracious care of a loving Heavenly Father. I, I, and I pluck this example not because it's low-hanging fruit, that, 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 oh, this isn't easy. Snatch that and smash it against the wall. That was, that was, that was a cheap shot. No, no. I, I picked this not simply because it's low-hanging fruit as an example, but because uh, uh, I, I referenced Carl Sagan. And I, I don't know how many of you know him. Many in the sciences community will, right? Because, again, he is probably the foremost influential American astrophysicist or astronomer. And, and I think maybe most influential in his popularizing of science in the 20th century. So, so if, you've ta- if, if you've been in elementary or you've gone up through the ranks, through the high school and, and so forth, and in college, engaged in some of Carl Sagan's philosophy or astronomy or his videos, there's lots of media out there that he's done in the 20th century. Um, and, and, and I say this because he was so influential. Perhaps our audience here at Redeemer is, uh, would recognize more so his most influential disciple, that of Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Are you familiar Right, because he did the, the, the big huge Fox event of uh, of Origins, I think it was called, or Cosmos. Cosmos is what it was called, um, right? And so he is his his, his his he 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 acknowledges the influence of Carl Sagan. So again, I don't pick this because I found a qu- a good quick quote, and I'm snapping the fruit and smashing against the wall. I'm saying th- th- this is this is evidence. Uh, this is a picture, a window into the world of the idea that all men have some measure of the idea of providence, but they don't know it as the care. ...and love of a Heavenly Father. Carl Sagan, again... ...the most influential American astronomer... Uh, ...astrophysicist. I could be wrong on the most. Maybe I should say arguably, but I think the most. And science popularizer of the 20th century says this... ...from which tons of fruit flows. Quote, the idea that God sits... In, the, ...the idea that God sits in the sky and tallies the fall of every sparrow is ludicrous. You're like, ooh, man, that's tough, because I think Jesus said something like that. Right, right, so you're, you're, you're weighing the balance. You're weighing the balance. This is a shot across the bow, right? Like, that is ludicrous. It's not like, oh, Adam, he didn't really influence it. He's influenced nearly everybody. It's not just like improbable, it's ludicrous. But then listen to this point of reveal. But if by God one means the set of physical laws that govern the universe, oh, come on, then clearly there is such a God, lowercase. But he goes on to throw it under the bus. This God is emotionally unsatisfying because that's the only reason we're here. God meets our emotional needs. This God is emotionally unsatisfying, however. And then this small little comment off the side. It does not make much sense to pray to the law of gravity, end quote. You see, providence in some form is known to all people though not as the gracious care of a loving, heavenly Father. But you see, as providence, as we look as Christians, I set the sun here to rule the day, the moon here to rule the night, and there are signposts for all the cycles of the seasons and the orbiting of the earth and its axis to regulate time and the creatures who benefit from it. You see, providence includes God's care of all things of his creation through secondary causes it's not either or either god is involved or there's a law of nature and of gravity it's not either or it's not ludicrous that he oh. knows all that takes place within his creation you see the truth is this all things would instantly pass away if god did not uphold them it's true Colossians 1.17 simply makes this move as Paul is speaking. I'll read it for you, this idea. Again, I would urge you to consider that all things would instantly pass away if God did not uphold them, whether he be primary or through secondary causation. Colossians 1.17. Listen to this. It says, in him all things consist. So to the Christian, to you here this morning, Redeemer body, visitors with us whose faith rests in Christ alone, to the Christian, all here who would profess to indeed believe, providence reveals God as Almighty Father. When you sit down at your table, that is what you're giving thanks for. And it has another anchoring dimension beyond mealtime festivities. It has a much deeper anchor in the soul, if that's true. You recall, and I know many of you hold on to this very deeply. I know the entire Church of Christ does, but some of us through situational awareness more deeply, perhaps. He is also, if revealed on in Providence, as God the Father Almighty. He is also he who then in Romans 8 is able and desirous to turn everything toward our good. Paul says, In him all things consist. In him we find our coming and our going, our being, our existing we see in creation and providence that he is real, revealed his almighty father and Paul says it is he, our almighty father who is able and desirous to turn everything to our good. So this leads me to two questions for you and then we'll handle the last portion of the text and be done this morning. And uh, the two questions that I want to put before you to consider as a Christian, again, if you, if you don't confess this, Uh, and and then this would indeed not be applicable to you if you are a believer this has to be applicable to you so I put it before each here as a Christian number one do you daily acknowledge God's gracious providence in the providing for and the preserving of your life every day or did you just kind of grind it out make it from you know home to the office from the office home it is what it is or do you daily acknowledge I take time I stop and I submit humbly to God's gracious providence That it is he my almighty father who provided for me today and he preserved my life from falling and brought me back to this home second question now to ask then that flows from that is then if you acknowledge number two do you daily thank him for the good things you actively receive from his hand in the providing for and the preserving of your life do you daily thank him not just acknowledge it but are you moved to thanksgiving for it And I would urge you in the conclusion of providence, the considering of the sun and the moon and the stars setting for times and seasons and the governing of our time and our time here on earth to do otherwise, that is to do less than daily acknowledge his providential care as my father and to do less than to thank him for all he actively does in my day is to be sinfully presumptuous about the blessings of nature. Like this food just got here. I went to the store and bought it. There's a Heavenly heavenly Father who allows you to harvest the land and receive of its benefits and to harvest the seas and to eat of its favor. The last piece of the text for us this morning then to handle is just day five and it'll be shorter than we handled day four but I, I want to handle day five with you just for a brief moment. Notice verse 20 through 25 and God said performative utterance again God said, let the waters swarm and swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, to every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, uh, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day, the most significant piece of day five is the revelation here that the principle of life came into being by the direct command of God. I just urge you, again, if you look... How how do I get there? Um, Again, because he says in verse 20, let the waters and swarms with living creatures. That's it. Let let life be birthed into the world. You you see, and and when when it goes from all life's forms and you're included in that as a creature on the earth... You were not formed by chance. As new forms of life developed from matter that spontaneously became more complex. It's just not the case. Um, Again, how do I know that? Were you there? Well, I I received it uh, by faith. This is the testimony of the word of God, just as I saw my brothers and sisters in Hebrews 11. I want to urge you that you were created by a loving God who is not only the source of your life and he is indeed that that your life came from him but is your daily sustainer and provider God has in other words created you and he loves you let there be living creatures, life principled came from God directly But I want to conclude this piece, then, as how we are to handle this text. What, then, are we moved toward? What do we learn here that God created all life forms and, indeed, upholds them? Well, it comes full circle. Now, in our last moment of close, it comes full circle, all the way back to our brothers and sisters in Hebrews 11. What what do we take from this? Martin Luther concludes so wisely. So I'll end with his words. He says that such a text is to raise our hope and to fix our confidence in God. If he is the source of my life, could he then not also defend my body? after it has been placed in the grave and revive it yet again unto a new life? The folks in Hebrews 11 believed he could. And where did they get it? By faith he created the universe. Luther then concludes, we must know God's power. So that we may be completely without doubt about all the things which God promises in His Word. Here, are the final comment from Luther. Here, full assurance is given concerning all of His promises. The heaven, the earth, the sea, and whatever is in them prove this to be true. Let us pray. Father, We thank you for the truth.